0: Hi, Nikolai. Welcome back.
1: Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, what happens on your side right now? So, what are you doing?
1: Like, right... Well, I'm doing the podcast. But otherwise, uh, yeah. I'm preparing yeah, for yeah, holidays. the
0: podcast and after the podcast. I'm, holidays. Yeah,
1: I'm going to be... Uh, take a two-week vacation on Crete coming okay. Sunday.
0: This is is a conference or...? Uh, no, like,
1: you know, like like when you take time off work and you take the family and go away? That kind of thing. It's weird, Do I know. I mean, but sometimes it... I mean, yeah.
0: You mean if you're doing Java 19, then or what happens then with the family, right? So you can explain to your family, you know, one day we get Java 20 and you can expect this thing. For now. And back to work usually is... Uh, Back to Java 4 or something like that, it's 1.4, right? Well, well, we're
1: joking, but I actually, like, what I like to do is when I go uh, traveling is I try to figure out whether there's a local Java user group I could present to, and indeed there is one. So actually going to also spend an evening in Heraklion and uh, present on, uh, you know, the upcoming Java Mm -hmm. versions on Amber and Valhalla, Loom and Panama.
0: This is what I suspected. So it was not (laughs) joking, actually. So um, uh, this was also my my plan, you know, uh, vacations plan. But uh, yeah, yeah, you, you, you have always to set it right to the family. You know, this is the... Yeah, yeah you
1: called me out. Like, it's true. Like, so but this is like, actually, and also like, I'm not going to stop working entirely. Look, my dream life is not not working. My dream life is working a couple hours a day and then be on the beach, right? So when I go on holiday, it's my chance yeah. to live the dream life. So what I try to do is to sneak a few hours away from the family and just spend like two hours, you know, lazy sitting with a the, with the laptop somewhere where it's nice and sunny and do some, you know, some lazy pull request reviews or write a blog post. And then when I'm done working and I'm using air quotes here, uh, then I go to the beach because that's, that, that would be amazing to do that all, all day, every day. Um. So the closest I can get is to simulate that during holidays because I'm living in Karlsruhe, which is very nice, but really doesn't have a good beach.
0: So for me, it um, sounds like dream, but uh, I think the beach is nice for half an hour and then becomes boring for me. So I would try to do something different. But if you are happy with the beach, uh, let's see. You know, we will meet again if you we are 80 and the next podcast will be the episode, I think, 2050 or something like this. And then we can talk whether it is really a dream, you know, to sit on the beach beach and do nothing.
1: Well, Yeah. I mean, like you don't have to do nothing, but you're right. Like I, this gets boring at some point, uh, but you know you can do other stuff. You can learn how to surf and one day, you can one you know. Day. So okay, this is this reading, is but um, I would good. call.
0: Uh, uh, okay, perfect. It's true, but on the beach is is too bright to read.
1: So ah <laughs> oh, man, favorite. you're already an old man. Uh,
0: and there, <laughs> yeah, there is you no, know, there is a wind, and there is end. So if I would like to read, is you know in in the oh. basement is the base, you know, you, reading,
1: reading. Okay, look, you should try this new thing, which is called an ebook uh it's even waterproof i can even read while, well well oh. it's just just like a meter though so like i shouldn't actually drop it to the ocean but you can read on the on the uh on the beach yeah. like specifically actually like i'm I'm really trying like back when i was still well not a kindle uh but uh yeah technically um so when i was uh still reading actual books i was like really fond of them and i tried them mm-hmm. you know to 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 um uh, to have them around for a long time and that taught me not to bring them uh, to the salt sea because the salty air dries cheap glue, and the and those books that are only glued, the pages will just start falling out. So you either get like expensive books, yeah. uh, or you better not take them to the ocean. <laughs> All right, at least like not even into the ocean, but just right next to it is already damaging to the books.
0: So what you learn right now, vacations are way too complicated, right? So everything uh, gets damaged. You have to be careful what you are doing. You know, also if you are working, it's just a you know, relaxed situation. But if I have to think, you know, which books can I take to vacations? And, you know, uh, and what, what the ocean can destroy? So I think just working with Java is way better, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's that's much safer, at least. Like, you know, like, you know, you all have garbage collection in real life. Safer, exactly. like, it's safer, <laughs>
0: Oh, the ocean is the garbage collection of old pages Oof. you read with the book. But um, you see, this was uh, this was. Um, I, I'm the, the, the true evangelist. It's no more co evangelist, right? So, what you're not evangelist anymore, right? No, so, uh, you are the, uh, the, the, the defrel. Yeah, uh, defrel. Right. Developer Relations Group,
1: I think, is the official name.
0: So then I'm ah, I'm And joking aside, the two hours. So um I think if you are really focused I think you could achieve in 2 to 3 hours an entire working day. So this was my uh, observation if I was you know and conferences like let's say Java one almost vacations back then but I had to fly there or uh if I'm in a train or is I have limited time right so if there are 2 or 3 hours focused work you can you can achieve amazing things. So I would say um spending Two hours on a, uh, to working, and the remaining day on the beach can be actually extremely productive. This is my, this this is actually what what, what I really believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. So I, I work somewhat long hours, but the main contributor to that is that I have, um, yeah, that I, like, it's challenging for me at the moment, like not at the moment, like for years now to actually like do focused work, like as you described. So for example, one of the uh, one of the things that drove productivity down, down uh, during traveling was when German bands starting to introduce internet on their trains. Because before they had intent on the trains, mm-hmm. I would just bring all my work offline to my laptop and I would just have like three hour train right? I could just work for three hours focused. And now everything is like, I got Twitter, I got Slack, I got emails. And now it's like my productivity went down the drain. So I'm really like, I'm not good at just like sitting for two hours and working productively. Um, you know, I spend to, uh, you know, maybe spend some time on social media and then, you know, like walk around the flat and prepare some more food or clean some stuff up. And like, it's, it's not exactly uh, that focused work. And that then, I mean, that's that's like a vicious cycle, right? So what that leads to is, well, I got to get this shit done, though. So I'm going to work later. And then the next day, you're not super fit either because, you you know, just worked a long day yesterday. And so, yeah, from that perspective, that's actually what you should do on vacations is to actually not work at all, not think about work at all, to just really, like, recharge the batteries. Um, so I'll see. Like, I probably, like, we wait away for two weeks. And I gotta get uh, there's some things I need to fix I need to to get done, so probably I wanna try to get like the first week out as I said like just a couple of hours of work a day, not many like two to three maybe and then the second week uh just just really try to relax but yeah, like you're right though like if you could work very focused uh i'm I agree a hundred percent that you can get probably not as much as an eight hours done, but a lot
0: and I think what is work right so um if you um just just back to vacations. So what I really enjoy about uh, German vacations is like you no know, Christmas or now we have uh, or we had Easter or or whatever. Uh, that most of the companies are not working, so I'm getting less emails or no emails from my clients. So and the interesting stuff is I can I can ignore all the you know social interactions, all the social media, and just focus on coding, which I really enjoy. So, and this is almost like vacations, because, you know, I can spend, you know, two hours coding, something is accomplished, you know, everything is green, and I can do something different. But um, in a regular working day, uh, you get, you know, emails, you have to, to deal with uh, other stuff, which uh, is just, a uh, so no kidding, maybe, if, even if we are, are on vacations, and we are working on a fun Java project, it could be true vacations, bec- it, it could look like a work, but I mean, whether we know vertical mapping or, you know, Sudoku, whatever, it is this also thinking, right? So why I cannot just write code yeah. to, 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 uh, to enjoy it, right? So, I mean, yeah. yeah. There's
1: a different aspect to, to work and to uh, relaxation as well, right? So one thing you're saying there is, well, if I enjoy doing it, then to a degree, that's not that much work. But, and, that, and and as I said, I think to a degree, that's true. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that just using the same, you know, the same mental processes, the same part of the brain, like, like you're already exciting a lot during work. Mm -hmm. um, To the brain, to a point, whether you have fun or not, like, it will make a difference, definitely. But it will still be, uh, it's like saying, hey, I'm not doing pull-ups for work, now I'm doing pull-ups for fun. Great, but you're still going to exert your muscles, right? Mm -hmm. You're still going to be tired afterwards. So I think to a degree, um, that that still plays a role. But you're right, like, I'm not going to do, like, I'm going to shut off email for that time, so that's good. Um, but and, and exactly what you say, there's like a mm-hmm. um, um, open source project that I want to do a pull request, that I want to go th- a review pull request, a big one that's that's out there right now, and um, just like a bunch of small things, I have like small projects lying around where in the heat of the moment, like I use. Uh, so for example, when I when I create videos, the assets I create, I, I do that with a small little web based project, and I often do like small little changes in the heat of the moment that I need for the for the video, but then I don't have time to properly clean them up and commit them uh during the same time frame because i'm busy with the video and so a couple of changes have just like ramped up so that's something i want to do i just want to go through the project and clean it up a bit and then later like that takes probably just two hours and then i feel like hey great this project is now in a better state than it was before so i often do that like if i do small small, little experiments i have like changes lying around locally that at some point in the future i will come back to you know look at the changes and then clean them up and commit them and so that's some of the of the um of the work i'm planning to do so yeah
0: also interesting, a thought, right, um, if you're reading a book, I'm not sure whether you're using a different parts of brain than by coding. This is also to be proven, you know, whether if you are reading a, a book, is this really a, something different than coding? This would be interesting. Yeah, but to, because to, to it's to Because you are using the brain. So,
1: yeah, I mean, you're always using the brain, but you're not problem solving. Right. I mean, so it depends on what you read, right? But if you read fiction, you're not problem solving. You're just yeah. imagining stuff. So I I'm pretty sure that would that would count as relaxation. Yeah, it
0: depends which fiction, right? So there, there maybe there's a challenging fiction, you know, challenge fiction uh, <laughs> yeah. if, if you if you merely start to think, you know, about uh, what what happens here in meta and why and then and then it's this is very this like it's problem solving again. It really depends <laughs> on the book I'm just saying. So maybe we'd better not just to go like to the to a temple and meditate, you know, do nothing. This this uh, one would but if yeah. as long as long as we try you know to to read something that this may be what really because but this is a different thing, right? So we should uh, back to vacations again. And Java 18, this is where, uh, and you already told me uh, one sentence before the show, you know, Java 18 is, of course, boring. We have Java 19, <laughs> but still Java 18. So um, briefly, briefly, briefly covered, right? So we have the code snippets, which I really enjoy, right? This is a, a big, big deal, the code snippets. In Java document. And um, and what is it, Nikolai? You, you, yeah.
1: Yeah, you mean, what is
0: the proper name? Isn't the proper uh, code snippets in Java Doc?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was I didn't catch the Java doc. Yeah. So you're talking about code snippets in Java doc, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah, yeah, I think uh so, so you use them? Uh, well, I don't have a project at the moment that uses JDK 18. So nope. Um, mm-hmm. but we use something similar. So uh, what we use is uh, so, so the basic idea is, right, you have documentation and documentation contains examples. And I think while documentation should often, uh, like depends, you have different levels of documentation, right? Specifically, Java doc should be concerned with like defining a contract. And for defining a contract, you don't really need technically examples, but they still help a lot. And the better parts of the Java doc mm-hmm. are those like uh, the Java doc, for example, on the package Java util stream which just has, like, a long introduction to how they work. Something that is tough to explain on any individual interface is instead explained uh, on the package doc. And that has examples, a lot of, like, just... It's almost like a tutorial. It's still very formally written, um, but it does go into great lengths to explain all the concepts. And for that, specifically, examples are great. And also, if you have a documentation for a project on the website, which is not Java doc maybe, uh, but you still want to have uh, examples there. So we don't use... Uh, code snippets in Javadoc at the moment, but I do use code snippets in AsciiDoc, which is kind of similar. So the, the idea here is that if you have a text-based document like Java uh, Doc or AsciiDoc and you just write the code snippets out there, well, then, first of all, you're not sure whether they compile. <laughs> but second of all, even if they do, you're not really sure whether they do what you promised they do in the surrounding um, documentation, right? the surrounding text. And you would think, well, that's just tough luck. You can't automate um, a documentation but you can get you can get some help. And what you can do in ASCII doc, and that's what we're doing there, which you can now also do in your Java doc, is you can put your uh, source code into a, another file and then import a section of that file into your documentation. And the great thing about that is that that other file can be and should probably be a full-blown Java source file that the compiler can actually work with. So what as, what code snippets in, in, in Java doc allow you is to create a .java file somewhere, put your code that you want to show in your documentation into that file, have it compiled. Mm-hmm. You can actually have it tested, so that this, this was not would not be a big challenge, right? What you can do is have a separate source tree. We call it uh, instead of source main Java and source test Java, we call it source demo Java. In there, go all the mm-hmm. source files that are just used in the, in the documentation, and then we just um, we compile those. Question yeah. now. Question to you. Yeah, go.
0: Why you are not writing a unit test?
1: Yeah,
0: with uh, the demo functionality. Yeah,
1: that's the question I often get. So uh, in the demos, we definitely can write unit tests as well, right? And you should probably write some assertions. But tests Mm -hmm. and demos have a very different audience, and they change for different reasons. So that's why I would not do that. So like a a demo, uh, sorry, Mm -hmm. um, a demo you write it in a way that best explains what the text before or after needs as an example, right? So you're focused on how can I make these three lines that I want to show because you don't show the whole file, right? That would be too much. You just show like a couple lines, mm-hmm. how to make those lines the most, the best teaching lines that I can do. And then you write a bunch of stuff before and after to make it compile or to even run and assert it. Like You can actually do that. You can no problem. You can have those demo files not only compile, but also run. And have assert the correct behavior, but I would say I would argue I would write that code differently and specifically if something changes I would update it with a different uh, with a different uh, requirements in mind. Whereas a test, still of course you want to write tests so that they um, that they are clearly readable and communicate well what their intention is to do, but you will do other things like you will write code maybe a little bit terse, a little bit less terse. You will not go through all the different ways to use the same API because it would all result in the same tests, for example, right? You would only, you're looking for something else when you write tests. And that's why I think those are different requirements. And so there should be different file trees, but the demo file tree will be much smaller, right? It will just contain the stuff that you actually want to show in the documentation, which is not everything. It's much, much less.
0: I'm just thinking because um, uh, unit test is less so, but um, what I always, um, the difference maybe uh, my project, I usually like remote one, microservices or something similar, right? And um, what what happens to me is the unit tests are, is, is not the right place, but the system tests or black box tests, what happens is, uh, let's say we create, we create a software to, uh, to manage uh, vacations, let's say, right? So, and I would say, create new vacations. And, uh, and then I, I check whether the vacations are actually created. So I go to the same, to, to another, you know, to another endpoint and ask for the vacations and see whether everything was created as expected. So then I have another test, and the another test is update vacations, because I don't like to go to vacations to to to, to greet because I would like you know, to Greece, I would like to uh, have a Java user group meeting, let's say. So I would have to update my vacations, right? So and um, if I update the vacations, usually the another system test is create vacation, update, and read again. So what you will quickly find that the tests are repeating. So what I do, I don't know whether it's the correct way of testing, but what I tend to do is... I factor out in my in my in my uh, system test the piece of creation in a dedicated class, and then I can reuse this class in both tests. And this class sometimes um, then it even loses the assertions because it is like you know uh, vacation creation thing and is used by creation test and by update test and be the other tests as well. And what happens over time that my system test st- tends to start to look like a client. So um, I'm actually, I'm refactoring the system test a lot, and I move even class from source test Java to source main Java because it's reusable, but the entire project is just for system test purposes, my microservices. Mm-hmm. And um, it happened to me several times, so this is why I'm asking you, that actually what happened there, I wrote, actually this code is directly reusable as a, as a sample code because it has nice names, you know, create vacations, update vacations, and could be absolutely used as a snippet.
1: Yeah, I, s- I still think, like, I mean, that could work, right? At system tests, that makes much more sense, I think, than unit tests. But I still think that there's a chance that at some point you want to do something in your test, like refactoring code, right? Like factoring it out, say, like, okay, I'm do every system test uses this method, This there's just this like, two, three lines. Let's just factor this out in a separate method. I think in a code snippet, that would probably not be helpful. In a code snippet, you'd probably say, no, no, let's keep these three lines in. So it's a self-contained snippet. And you don't have to be like, first, we introduce this method, and then later use the method everywhere, because that means each individual snippet for example, would not be copy-pastable, right? Because the user would have the reader would have to know, oh, up there somewhere is where the method was declared. Because we all know how this works, right? We're, search- we're googling for something, we're searching, we're landing on documentation. We scroll, scroll, scroll. This looks good. Let's try get this to work. We don't read the full article that leads up to this. So I think it would be great if examples were mostly self-contained, and that that requires some repetition. And in actual test, including um, uh, sorry, in actual code, including test code, you want to avoid the repetition. So you work against it and try to factor code out so i mean it could work and what we often do is use it as a starting place right so we go through our unit tests you know what you want to demonstrate you want to say okay this is how you use the annotation and i know i use that annotation in my test so i scroll through the tests oh yeah that looks good that's a good piece of code i just copy paste it over into the demo massage it a bit you also have to insert text so you have to insert this specific um java doc sorry sorry this different specific java comments uh inline comments that uh, mark where a section begins and ends because what you don't want to do is you don't want to pull in, as I said, the entire class or the entire method. So you have a comment that says the section foo begins here and then later you have a comment that says the section foo ends here. And those comments would look somewhat messy in test code, but they're unavoidable in in this demo code that you want to put parts out of for your documentation. So I still think it should be a separate source tree. But look, if people start using this and they pull in their, their test code, uh, I'm not the police. That's fine with me. Like the more the more documentation there is, the more well-written documentation there is, and the more of the code snippets in there are actually compiled and, and even tested, I'm happy with that, right? So the last week, we're basically squabbling over like the last 10% here. Mm-hmm.
0: So that may be, you're right. Um, so I think the uh, ultimate solution is going to be um, to have maybe in my case, to have a demo section, as so source main demo, which points to the system test actually, because uh, the, in this, um, so maybe to explain, I don't know whether you're aware of the micro profile REST client. So what what happens um, usually in my projects, I have a Java interface, which basically is the remote endpoint. This is in 80% of my projects. It, it looks like, you know, uh, there's annotation get or post or put or delete. There's a response. There's a JSON object coming in. And this looks uh, almost identical to the origin endpoint with a little bit different, uh, signature, because sometimes, uh, you know, we need uh, authentication, authorization, JSON web tokens, and sometimes we use responses, sometimes strings or JSON, whatever uh, um, suits our needs. But uh, this actually reflects the API one-to-one. And we could use actually demo uh, section to, sh- to, to to present how to work with this thing and even, you know, borrow some, some pieces from from the system test. And not a police, it's just, you know, I thought about how to pragmatically reuse as much as possible because what i also tend to do mm-hmm. i sometimes reuse my system tests for stress tests so i'm lazy you know to, to write explicit tests so my the same api i'm talking about right now is also used or reused in stress tests or torture tests or whatever you call it so i'm really uh interested in no not not repeating myself and try to re- reuse as much as possible this is where, where the idea comes from
1: yeah and I mean, and the the JavaDoc snippets they give you a few things that you can make that more viable. So, for example, you can search and replace stuff based on just strings or even regular expressions. So you could say, okay, so my for this code to actually work, for this test to actually work, I have to, for example, pass an authentication token. But I don't want to show that the detail of how to do that in the demo. That's not important right now. So what you could do is you could still pull in the same snippet, and then on the part on the on the in the place where you import. You say okay, and please do me a favor: uh, search and replace that string with like three dots with an ellipsis, right? So you said okay. So don't don't go into details on the on the web token. I need that for the uh, for the test to work. But in the actual demo, I pull that in and replace that with something simpler or something shorter. I mean that, of course, quickly gets you into a lot of like string mangling, and then the question is how well maintainable is that? But there are some, like you know, some some hotspots where you are going to say like okay, this one thing I just want to you know just not show to the to the reader. It's not important. Um, so you can replace that with something simpler. So that actually does work. So the code snippets are not just like pulling in that copy-pasting that code. You can do additional processing based on that um, to make sure that um, you can, for example, you can highlight pieces of code. You can, in the where you import, you can say, find everything that matches this regex and make it bold, for example. And that way you can um, like highlight specific sections of the code too. So there's a bunch more tools, and if people are interested in this, in this, I can recommend uh, checking out. I think I wrote a news. Uh, we made, I made a newscast about this. So the inside Java we newscast on YouTube to... that I do. Uh, we can probably put that through the show notes. Yeah, yeah I don't sure. know which episode it is at the moment.
0: This is uh, sounds like this feature was developed by JDK developer.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah. So I, and the and the, the Java doc says the, the sorry the JEP says that that it's not a goal of the JEP to replace all code snippets uh, like that, I, that already exist because that would be a lot of work but I really hope that the future will be that new code snippets uh, from the in the JDK will always be uh, created as a separate source file and then just pulled in because I just think it makes more sense it makes mm-hmm. it everything more easily to maintainable. Yeah. Although that argument that argument applies a little less to the JDK because it is very stable, right? So like it's the, 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 the issue with writing examples that then fail later is because your API changed. And the API of the JDK changes very rarely. So I think they have actually less of an incentive to use it than everyday projects because our projects are much more volatile than the JDK API.
0: But the uh, processing could be interesting for internationalization, right? So you could have a, a different snippets depending on language, for instance. You could do this.
1: Not sure that's supported,
0: but it could be, right? I don't so, think I mean, there's
1: any like any language support.
0: No, it's not. It's not. But if I'm able to process the snippet, so I could process differently to different audiences, for instance, right? In theory, I wouldn't do this, so I'm happy. Enough. Yeah, yeah. But
1: the like Java doc is just written in one language, right? Yes. But the examples, so whatever language your Java doc is in, like
0: this is true. But the API is English usually. But you know, the, the this we are talking about examples now. Yeah and the examples can be language specific so we could use you no know, the john or johann or something like this right hans or john.
1: <laughs> okay john duke or hans uh, duke on hans but D- yeah but you just like yeah um, but again like i i don't think like that i don't think that will work right because like you can just generate one java doc so you, well, is there a way to create java doc in different languages you would usually you just create you run a java doc tool and it creates one set of documentation right so sure. already on that level like already the natural text that you wrote before but, and after not um, The, the example that to... already is all in one language,
0: but I could rerun the Java dog multiple times, right? So, I mean, who cares? So, I mean, this is technically doable. So I could generate one Java run with different settings, for instance. Why not? Should actually work. Man, Java dog is a Java processor. Uh... You don't think so? I heard technically perspective. Yeah, but like, where
1: do you write? Like, let's say you want, but let's say you have, okay, so let's say I have a class and I want documented in English and in German. Mm-hmm. How, though? I would I would write, like, the Javadoc first in English and then in German, and then I have to somehow tell the Javadoc to, to throw away half no, 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 the no. content for the English version and the other half no, for no, the no, German no. version?
0: What, what the idea was, what, what you told me, that you can replace parts or, you know, you have the ellipses and replace this part with something different. So just a replacement. So I could replace, yeah. you know, just replace the variable part depending on language, for instance, right? And this should work
1: okay if, hmm. even
0: if it's I mean this is uh, the uh, in, at the end of the day it's Java and Java doc is Java, so even we, if you put system properties whatever we should we should be able to react to it
1: right no yeah, I, I don't quite see it, I gotta admit, but you know what you you prove me wrong so uh, you got you come up with an example on that and uh, i'll I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> wrong right This
0: was just you talk me that uh, you, you told me that uh, you can actually replace part of the thing and my immediate idea, okay, where it could be useful. And as okay, maybe, you know, we have a different on, depending on context, I could put different... St- so my first idea, as you thought about this, was we could actually generate, if you have one example, you can say, okay, now you have one insert statement and we can create five, right? So it looks like is boring, it's not really useful. But if you will replace, you know, the content with something context-specific, and my idea was what is context-specific language? And this was just my idea, right? So this was not like I have a use case, it's just my immediate reaction to this, what you said, uh, what happened. And then I asked, this is not like, you know, a requirement or just an, an uh, idea what we you could do. And in most projects, I'm happy that we have Javadoc at all. So I, I I'm, I'm, I, I for sure. W- yes, I, I wouldn't do this in, in my projects. It was just you no know, understanding. Okay, but I'm still
1: s- yeah, maintaining maintain documentation is, is already tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm already happy, uh, or happy. I'm surprised how, how how many features are there in the snippets uh, really so it's like uh, no this is like uh, in, Uruguay, you know the history behind this how, how um, they came I don't with know anything beyond the JEP okay because this would be interesting nope. to invite someone from the JEP you know and talk about how, how they came up with the feature because it seems like some, someone had a problem uh and uh and uh they, they they came up with solution and this is like well thought you know jeb so it would be this is jeb for for thir- 13 and the author is pavel rapo is the owner and authors are jonathan gibbons and pavel rapo so it would be actually interesting to talk with these guys um uh, um um why they had the problem, right? Because uh, it's so interesting... This is actually a job for a dev rel, I would say, on vacations. So it's a vacation job, something like this, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I just looked it up, by the way. It was in, inside Java Newscast 20, the way I covered the JEP. So what I, I'm not sure how this JEP exactly uh, um, came to be, but what usually happens is somebody has an idea, as you say, somebody has a problem and thinks looking for a solution, um, but then they're also doing research, right? So what I would expect is, okay starting from the idea that we want to have compilable code snippets how do we get there and then of course like the idea is very it's very easy to say well it would probably be easiest if you just have a separate source file and just pull stuff in you could come up other solutions right you could think no no, no. let's somehow compile let's somehow identify code tags in javadoc and let's throw those at the compiler but that wouldn't work because you don't have full compilable uh, code in there right um, so I think pretty sure that, that the idea was quick to be like, okay, let's put this in, in the source files and then just pull code out uh, from those into the Java doc. I'm pretty sure that then based on that, there's probably going to be some research. Like, okay, so what do we do? What 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 do we want to do with these snippets? And then like, okay, for example, you want to replace stuff that you don't want to show because it's, too, it's like it's incidental uh, complexity. It's not part of the teaching that you're doing. Or you want to highlight something, right? You want to make something bold or otherwise highlighted to tell this is the important part. So I would guess... That starting from the point, we would like to have uh, compilable code snippets. What covers much of the use cases that we have based on that? And I would I would expect uh, that research to have ended in okay. What we need is this. So for example, there's there's more stuff, right? So um, one specific thing that's very interesting is it's called sort of hybrid snippets. So so far I've just talked uh, talked about pulling code in. From an actual source file, which I think is the major use case of this. But you don't have to. Like you also have it easier now to write code in line in your code snippet. That also became easier. Um, but the interesting thing is when you when you read the actual Java doc, like not the source file, I mean, not the, on the website that's generated from that. But read the actual source file of a class. You actually w- like to see. Oh, this is the this is the code example here. You don't want to just have a reference to another file that then you have to open it and Go look at that. So actually, for the user or rather for the reader of the source Java doc, it's a bit more cumbersome if every example is somewhere else. So there's this thing called hybrid snippets where you where you use both facilities at once where you write the code into the Java doc but also reference an external file. You can see the code in line, but the Java doc like when you read the source again, but the Java doc tool when generating the page will also pull in the code from the external file and will compare them. And if they're not identical will throw an error. So the idea behind this is you have your snippets in the source in the Java doc source, so you can easily read it if you read the source, but you basically have that compilable file as a backup. That compilable file will be compiled and if it like if the API changes and it doesn't compile anymore, you get a compile error. If you then change the external file, you get a Java doc error because you didn't update your internal snippet. Um, I'm not sure whether that's how important that really is, yeah, but this is I what think you're besides talking about
0: was actually my idea, so the internal snippet would be my client interface um, which uh, which is like it is is the API, and the code around could be an inline snippet because I show how to work with it, but if the API changes, it will
1: yeah, but the the, the snippet that you write into your Java doc source, and the the part that you pull in from the external file has to be the same letter by letter. Oh. That's okay. what the snippet is the, the idea with the snippet is you repeat this intentionally. So you intentionally repeat it so it's easier to read if you read the java doc source because you don't have to manually look up an external file. Um, but you have the external file that is compiled. I'm not 100% convinced how useful this is because like it's just it just seems like more work for the marginal benefit of um they're being able to read the Java doc source like in the text file which i don't think is that terribly important specifically because uh the uh, many IDEs will probably soon be able to resolve that import and so if you look at the code in your ide it will probably be able to do the actual embedding and then the only issue is basically pull requests where it would sp- still be nice to see how maybe what example changed where but i'm not sure whether that's worth all the effort but as you said, like I wasn't—that was basically in reply to somebody had a problem and looked at this closely. I agree. Like there was somebody uh, who had like a very specific set of requirements that were so uh, that were here implemented, and I guess that they came to be like just from research. Like what do we actually need uh, to write uh, good documentation? But in ma- many of these jabs, follow roughly like I don't know, not sure whether it's eighty twenty or nineteen ninety ten, but they're trying to say okay, let's not. Let's not shoot for a 100% solution. Let's just get something that's pretty good and usable. And if we just need one more additional feature in this, then we can add this later, right? Because this would be adding features to this in uh, import wouldn't be terribly uh, complicated. So I'm sure there are still um, use cases that are not fulfilled at the moment.
0: And is it possible that the, uh, in the inline snippet, the code around references a code which is pulled from the external source and is compiled together? This will be also useful. What I know because you could write the mm. demo code in the snippet and it would be compiled together with the code which is pulled from the API.
1: Yeah, so you're basically saying, like, I need, I, I put like an, I uh, have a frame and then I have the context, uh, the content basically, and I want to put those together. No, that doesn't yeah. work. Okay. That would be interesting though, right? I think that would be a different approach to trying because then, as you say, then you can have the example code like right there in the Java yeah. doc source. Yeah. Uh, and then just say, and to, for this to work, put it into that place, into that other file. Um that would actually be interesting. Uh I'm I'm wondering they probably considered that. Um but yeah, I'm wondering why um that sounds very helpful. I agree.
0: Yeah, this is like the, the the this would be my my hybrid uh, hybrid snippet 2.0, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh so back to you uh, with the ASCII doc. Um why are you using ASCII doc in a markdown because ASCII doc is more powerful? Or uh, Yeah, so uh,
1: mm-hmm. So for I like I'm not sure that I mean there are many markdown um Markdown is not actually like a standardized format, right? There's Markdown flavors and everything. So maybe some flavor imp- like support importing, but usually Markdown doesn't. Markdown is just like one file is one mm-hmm. thing kind of thing. And AsciiDog is not like that at all. It's, it has more of a... Of a larger scope. It's not just look, one one file is going to be one one document. It's more like well, you probably have uh, a larger thing to document, a larger project, and so if we can. Mm-hmm. So it gives you more tools. And one of them is that you can more easily import stuff. So it's much mm-hmm. easier to have um, to have one page. Maybe you have like a very long page it just made up of of importing of other ASCII doc pages. Um, and that's something that uh, also includes importing source code, which also, to my understanding. Does not work with Markdown at all. You have to if you have an inline example, you have to put it inline right there. But uh, with Asciidoc, you can import text from other files, and that's one of the reasons. But not the only reason. Like, generally, Markdown is, Asciidoc is a little bit more refined. Like you have this what's called admonitions. So you just write, for example, warning in all caps colon, and then you write something. And whether you turn that into PDF. Or, or an html document they all understand oh yeah, there's a warning so they all have like some special casing so for example on a, on a pdf document i think you get like the warning uh sign the the exclamation point mm-hmm. um and then a vertical line and then to the right of that somewhat indented you get the actual text right so they would make a call out oh this is a warning or this is um there's more stuff like a note i think exists It's like the information i and then also on because the html the the renders discussed. they also have this mm-hmm. Yeah, go. I have
0: discussion with my clients because uh, we we had um, we used they use Markdown and uh, I use Asciidoc and uh, and then I did some research and it turned out that the um, Asciidoc is very compatible with Markdown. But uh, in my cases, I use Asciidoc mostly because the tables were way better than in Markdown. Mm. In Markdown the tables were not specified and in Ascii they were. And uh, as you said, I was able to generate PDF and HTML back then from from one source. And um, What's uh what tooling are you using for ASCII
1: Doc? Uh, so um, let me think. So we're that we're using this on the Janet Pioneer project, and that is a Jekyll based website. So we're probably using the okay. uh, some gem, some ASCII Doctor gem. But I'm privately also using uh, ASCII Doctor for my presentations, and that for that I use okay. uh, Reveal JS, and they use the JavaScript backend for ASCII Doc. So um, there's mm-hmm. that. And so, yeah. And I actually, my blog sadly doesn't use ASCII doc. I really wanted to, like when I started out. But I also need to manipulate HTML, uh, yeah, the HTML tree uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And that was much easier with the Markdown plugin. So the Markdown plugin for Gatsby, which I'm using for websites website specifically, or generally the Markdown rendering um, uh, and, and parsing, uh, packages on npm that exists seem to be, and that was like I, maybe I'm wrong here, so first of all they could have changed but also I might have just misunderstood but my understanding was like it was easier for me to get access to the syntax tree of the parsed markdown than to the syntax tree of the parsed ASCII doc and because I needed that, I with a heavy heart decided to use markdown then um, because I, I like I like, okay. uh, um, ASCII doc a lot actually, I like the project as well so it was a big shout out to Dan Allen and his team who are working on ASCII Doctor, which is, uh, I think, the main driver in that space. Uh, Like, ASCII Doc is the document format, and ASCII Doctor is, like, much of the implementation around that. Um, So if you're using ASCII Doc at all, you're very likely using uh, some code that Dan Allen um, wrote. And uh, so, yeah, yes, like, he has a in open collective where you you can support the project, financially support the project, I mean. And uh, that would be really great if, if people did that, because as to my understanding, the project is struggling a bit, but it's huge. Like it's very, very big. It would be sad to see it um, go under. Yeah. For for and then reasons. it's uh,
0: Mojave Linux. Mojave Linux on Twitter. Great guy. Exactly. And he yes. Also um, con- contributed a lot to CDI. He was actually he worked a lot with uh, context dependency injection. And then he started the ASCII doctors. He was a threadhead, so created you know JBoss Whitefly and CDI the dependency injection. And then he um, um, he started with the, the ASCII doctor project, which is really good. Yeah. Um, okay, we are, we covered the snippets, which is not bad actually for for us uh, in in a podcast episode. But there are a lot more to this, right? So in Java eighteen, um, um, I think um, from 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 the features perspective, we are not done yet. So we had, of course, the uh, simple web server, right? So uh, which sounds to be uh, is also uh, useful.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> actually, so uh, the simple web server, uh, I, I'll tell the joke later why I laughed. I'm going to explain it. Trust me, I'm not just manically laughing to the mic. Um, so yeah, so the idea is that uh, Java is a great enterprise language, um, but it's a little bit lacking when it comes to just like trying simple things out. And you've seen a push into that direction over the recent years. JShell was one part of that. The single source file execution is another part of that. And the simple web server is also part of that. The simple web server is, as it says, it's just a simple web server. You're not going to use that in production. You really shouldn't use it in production. <laughs> All it does is a static hosting of a couple of files, like in directory is the easiest. But you can have, you have an API as well. And with the API, you can do a little bit fancier stuff. For example, there was an article by Julia Burs who explained how to use it to host the contents of a zip file which was what I thought was like an interesting demo. But what you would usually use it for is with the command line, the new, sorry, the new binary that is in the bin directory of the JDK that you download, which is called jwebserver. And I had to laugh earlier because I always start with writing jwebstart I don't know why. I didn't even do a lot of Webstart, but I got so many horror stories of Webstart told to me that whenever I think of Java and web, and zzz, then just start comes out. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so I, for, a, for a bunch of times when I want w- launched jwebserver, I actually typed JWebstart and enter and then operating system is like, nope, that's not a thing. I'm like, why is that not a thing? Oh, right, it's jwebserver. So if you go with jwebserver, so you go into okay. directory, you type out jwebserver and we'll host that directory on I think 8000, uh, port 8000 there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just use it for demos, for, for tests, for just very simple things, just to get something up and running a, bit, a little bit quicker. And so it's, it's a very welcome addition. So for example, when I present, as I said earlier, my presentations are written with ASCII doc, and then they are turned into reveal.js which is a web technology. So my web, so my, uh, presentations are basically websites. Um, but I need to, mm-hmm. uh, I need to run a server in the directory. So now in the past, I used mm-hmm. to use, uh, an NPM a package for that, but now I can probably mm-hmm. use J Start. No, J ah, Server. See, there it goes. So I had to like when I present my J-Web slides, start I go server. to exactly. I have Server is the proper name, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> so now, yeah, I so I go to,
0: to yeah, the J-Web Server is. Um, I do also some JavaScript work, and actually I use um, BrowserSync and other tooling just you know to have a web server which uh, pushes the uh, contents to the browser. Mm-hmm. J Server would be a great start. The only thing which is lacking is the um, if something changes on the disk to notify the browser. So I already thought about, you know, doing this because uh, I could uh, see if the file changes on disk, which means I edit the file, then uh, the browser, there is a Chrome Dev, uh, Tools protocol. So I could use Socket or whatever to notify Chrome, reload, please, the page. And then we would have a ni- nice clean Java solution. Uh, this yep. is a killer use case for, for JWebServer, right?
1: So you're right. That that would be actually pretty neat. I gotta say, the way I work around that, uh, like with the, with the slides, for example, and even the, the npm package I used to use, wouldn't detect that. So <laughs> I have a browser plugin that just pings the server every second. <laughs> So uh, oh, okay. when I change for static files, it just it takes at most a second for the change to show up. But yeah, I agree it's not ideal. It also means that you have to close or at least put into the background the terminal that runs the server because like it gets flooded with messages, right? Because every second the browser is like, hey, let me load the page. Oh nothing changes, I won't update. Um so yeah, I agree though. That that would be kind of neat. Um I don't know how exactly that works. I think is there there's no standardized way to do that, is there? Like with Chrome and Firefox no, and it... Opera. Is there a standardized way for the server to trigger a reload?
0: No, but uh, what usually happens is uh, they have a small piece in the in the HTML, which listens to WebSocket changes, and the, and the server pushes via WebSockets. You, you could use SSE or whatever to, to notify the browser about the changes. So there is um, uh, WebSockets or SSE. There is a JavaScript client, so there's like a two-liner, and uh, it causes the browser reload. I think, um, so brute force would be, you could actually say window reload or something. So you can reload the actual browser automatically. Um, and uh, the, the browser sync and the other tools are a little bit more intelligent. So they are able to to replace individual files.
1: Yeah. So what I do for when I, as I said, my website, I wrote that in Gatsby and I terribly enjoy that Gatsby just does that all on the fly, right? So that's basically React. And in React, everything is supposed to have a key. Mm-hmm. So every piece of your HTML is uniquely identifiable uh at least you know within the react app uh, and that means like if you change anything really like it doesn't matter what you change as long as it's not, the, not the overall config you change it and then uh the running Gatsby system will detect the file change will do the will do the recompilation so whatever it needs to do like pull in the new css or update the, reparse the markdown whatever it does all of that and then just tells the running react app which you run, you know, during development to say, look, this piece of, this piece changed, this, this HTML um, element changed. And then it just gets updated. And that is super, super fast. That is like, as I said, like the, the the one second manual reload I use, you can see a noticeable difference between saving the file and then it showing up. It takes, you know, at most a second. You can notice that with Gatsby, it's super, super fast because it just like, it immediately updates the one element that changed. Um, and that is that is enjoyable. Like, it's a difference, actually. It's weird, but it's a difference whether it takes a second or it takes basically no noticeable time. Um, so, yeah. So, I agree. So, that would be neat.
0: Mm-hmm. A big one in, in JDK 18 is that uh, finalizers are deprecated for removal, which is a bigger thing than just deprecation. We yep. had already a conversation with Stuart Marks about that. And, um, and uh, the conversation was that... Um, the finalizers were introduced at the beginning of Java because at the beginning it was almost impossible to have a nice cleanup. But with mm-hmm. try with resources, uh, there was a solution to this, and now the finalization of finalizers just causing trouble without a true benefit. This is my understanding. What yep. um, what happens, right? So and so we get. So I assume in JDK nineteen there are no more finalizers, right?
1: No, no, no. <laughs> no, not that fast. Okay. No, no, don't no worry. So, uh, so I really think that the JDK team is is taking um, a really balanced approach to this. So on the one hand, identifying things that are not helping or rather that are actually harming. I think that the the threshold for things to get kicked out is quite high and it should be high uh, because even something like finalization, which has basically not, well, where well, there's no good reason to use it for at least a decade, is still being used and phasing that out takes a while. So I really think that it's important not to, you know, not just go with a shotgun through the code base and kill everything. That's not entirely helpful anymore. Even though like, it's like there's still classes like vector. I'm not talking about the vector API, like the old, the old school vector thing and, and a hash table or hash table. Those are still there. And you could argue they shouldn't be, but you know, pulling them out will cause a lot of pain for, not so much of a benefit, yes, they are pointless, but they're also not actively harming, but some things are actively harming and deprec uh, finalization, for example, um, causes uh, more complexity and more memory consumption garbage collectors, for example, and also lends itself to just making mistakes, to writing code that is worse to maintain and uh, worse to debug and that has worse performance. And that's not great, right? So, if you're using vector, the damage you're doing is very local. Again, not the new vector, the old yeah. one. If you're using vector, the damage that you're doing mm-hmm. is very local, and it doesn't matter a whole lot. But if you're using finalization in your app, you do pay an overall price, um, and you also gain some some less stability. So, I think it's really important to identify those cases where there's actually harm being done, and then pulling those teeth out slowly you know what they say about the band-aid right Peer it off slowly over a period of years that's the way to do it with minimal pain i think that's how the saying goes anyway so that's what we're doing here so i don't have any timeline uh i'm not aware of any timeline but it's not in 19 i can tell you that much there's not even a jab drive okay. for that and i would be surprised personally this is no inside knowledge it's just my personal opinion i would be surprised if it would be removed before i don't know next year so i'm sure like i think actual removal i don't think it's going to happen before 2024
0: it'll be interesting uh before whether the next lts what is the next lts 21
1: Uh, that depends a bit uh the proposal is 21 and i'm not sure whether Mm -hmm. the vendors already agree technically every vendor can do their own thing right so lts is not something that exists technically within the openjdk uh Mm -hmm. so within the openjdk project and community i mean so OpenJDK just has deals with the with the code base and with releases all of that. But which company supports which release for how long, that's basically on top of that and technically outside of the scope uh, of OpenJDK. But at the same time, you know, it does make sense for the big vendors to, to agree on, on certain releases because it just makes everybody's life easier. And to the best of my understanding, uh, only Red Hat had some qualms with the change to twenty one. But I'm not sure whether how that conversation really ended. It felt to me like uh, Mark proposed this a while ago, and then a bunch of companies said yes, good idea. And then after a while, Red Hat said we don't, we're not so sure yet. And to my understanding, that's the end of the that's that's how far the conversation has processed at this point, uh, proceeded at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether more decisions were made made. And I gotta ask, actually, I got I'm pretty sure that Oracle will long term support 21. And my mm-hmm. guess is that so will many other companies, but I don't know. You, you should ask those other companies. Even I, I can't even give you a definitive answer for Oracle because I haven't asked recently. But uh, for other companies, they would have to answer that. But probably Dude. it's going to be 21, so, yeah.
0: So the, the, the company meetings become more and more efficient, right? So Oracle says 21 and uh, Red Hat says, we are not sure and done, right? This is like a one-liner. This is a very, <laughs> uh, back then, there were no huge meetings, multi-hours, and now you know five minutes meeting done, right?
1: <laughs> yeah that's exactly how this goes not yeah. look, the thing is in many of these processes i'm just an outside observer and i, I prefer to stay like that because it's mm-hmm. like getting into the weeds of this is a complicated but it would also mean that if i get like tons of background information that then i can't share that sucks i don't i, I want to share stuff i want to talk about stuff so there are many places where i intentionally don't ask for background information so for example i never ask uh somebody like okay so what in what version will you will you think you will make? Like for example, I could ask Brian behind closed doors, Brian, when do you think will will value times be there? The reason why I don't ask is like either he gives me like the can't reply when it's done, which he probably should, but if he's like if he's foolish enough to give me like actual inside information what I'm gonna sit on it, that's not what I do. I share stuff. That's what I'm there for. That's what I like to do. That's why they hired me, because I can't stop talking. So I don't wanna have inside information because then I have to shut up about it. So that's why um but much of that is I don't involve myself in, so I really don't know what the process is. But I would expect it's more complicated than those the one-liners one-liner, yeah. suggest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so we uh, are three liners, you know. So dear, I don't know, committers, we are not yeah. sure. No. Best,
1: Red right rather no, published a blog post for that about that. Um, okay. That was a post. Yeah.
0: I I'm just kidding. So we have. Uh, we have. Uh, what's interesting in eighteen the Internet uh, Address Resolution SPI. Well, it's interesting because my understanding is it was blocking and they would like to prepare for Loom, right? So uh, it seems like yep. the, uh, it, it, what is internet uh, address resolution <laughs> is what it says. And uh, it can uh, block f- for longer time, which would be bad for Loom, right? This is my understanding.
1: Yeah. So uh, internet resolution, it, it's, about, it's about, yeah, it's about IP addresses, right? So you write yeah. a host, you need to IP address back. How do you do that? Well, on Linux systems, you often look for the host files and... So that part I know. Now comes my personal, spe- not speculation, but my that, that's that's not safe, safe knowledge anymore, secure knowledge anymore. So mm-hmm. I think it's because accessing those host files is actually blocking mm-hmm. because that's a problem at the moment. Most file I, file operations mm-hmm. will block a loom carrier thread just because there is no other implementation available in the uh, in Open JDK at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so my assumption is that the that that is why resolving a a host to an IP address is also um, a host name to an IP address. Well, that is also blocking. Mm -hmm. And so the SPI says they basically just pushed in a a layer of abstraction, but didn't Mm -hmm. provide an additional implementation yet. So the original implementation is still in place, but you can provide your own. And uh, that's that's actually very interesting because it's not that hard. Uh, The cool thing about this SPI is that it gives you the original resolver. So what you can do is you can just selectively do your own thing. That is pretty cool. I'm thinking about writing a test extension for that because what you could do is you could have an annotation in your test that says resolve this hostname to that IP address mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And what you could do then is you plug in a custom resolution, a custom resolver that gets the old resolver, and all it does is it forwards everything to the original resolver, right? Except mm-hmm. for that one hostname. That one hostname replaces with its own uh, with their own API. But and that should is- actually work. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether that makes sense, but it would work. <laughs> it
0: it would absolute sense. Very useful what I said is because uh, you could, uh, for instance, in CI/CD pipelines, you can use different hosts in production, for instance, right? So we we use yeah, now, that's what I figured. Yeah, uh, different different means for that. So we use um, MicroProfile configuration and override the system properties with that. But I absolutely see, you know, partial for debugging purposes, whatever. That I can I can just um, temporarily replace the host name, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think I would guess that in well factored apps, you probably be, don't need this. Like hooking into the lowest level, you probably have easy access wire configurations to like what host you want to resolve to. I was mainly thinking about like where to order legacy APIs where actually somebody just hard coded, like I don't know, like a domain name or like a public static final feed that you can't just yeah, easily change. Yeah, but the
0: domain is good one. So currently we rely on domain name in my project, so we have to use the domain name because we use it for yeah, uh, for for internal purposes. But locally I would like to you know if someone points to the domain name maybe I would like to use to 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 uh, to redirect to localhost right
1: this would be yeah for basis. a mock that's yeah, true yeah. yeah and this is very yeah, that, that mm-hmm. yeah that so if you if I get around to writing that extension the other problem is that pioneer does not base against JDk 11 uh sorry uh, against 18 at the yeah. moment it has it baselines against eight we're gonna to move to uh, 11 later this year uh, and it's a little bit challenging uh, you can but it's a little bit challenging to write code that only compiles on 18 and pull that into a JDK 11 jar. Once again, it works, but it's eh. So, uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm so you're doing some, the- some
0: retro programming right now with Java 8,
1: right? So, so yeah, so the funny thing is <laughs> that it's, it's a small hobby project, and most of our maintainers are currently on 11, like in, the, like in real life, the actual projects that they're paid for working on. They're on 11, so we thought about, you know, if we leave 8, we might just as well go to 17, And that makes sense, but but then we lose like four-fifths of our maintainer base can suddenly no longer use the project. And I think, I mean, that's like for a hobby project, that's really not a good, that's not a winning proposal. Like, okay, you know what? Let's change something about the project that 80% of our maintainers will not be able to use it anymore. I'm sure they will be thrilled to keep investing their time into a project they can't use. So (laughs) we're going to version 2, 2.0, probably later this year. We're going to go to 11.0. And then I hope that next year we're going to go to 17. Uh, But either way...
0: Or you change the strategy. What you could do, you could go to Java 18 and 19. Then all the maintainers cannot keep up. You can, you know, perform your changes as you like them. So you really complete refactoring of the entire projects. And then, if they get Java 18 and 19, you know, this is um, then can just will keep up and support you. This is um, how, you know, open source, good open source projects uh, are working, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. So, I can the funny thing is, I can already do whatever I want. So, because I'm the original creator of the project, and they were like, uh, so that's actually an interesting, interesting, uh, side topic that, uh, you know what? I'm just gonna leave it at that because I wanna talk more about 18 and 19 and we're gonna meet again to talk about Pioneer. But just yes. as a, as a teaser, we call me, and it's not just me, uh, the benevolent dictator. So yep. that's that's my official title in that project, and um, we can come back to that in, in a future episode.
0: Yeah, as I met you the first time, this was exactly my you know uh, opinion about you, uh, uh, a, small dicta- <laughs> a, a small dictator, right? So wait,
1: wait, but I said benevolent. That's much nicer than just a small dictator. A small yeah, dictator is still was, a dick.
0: Yeah, but this is the there connection problems with the benevolent. You know, I said okay, <laughs> okay, okay. But but for open source, um, benevolent uh, dictator is actually the right thing to do if someone has a vision because uh, if this is completely democratic it's just how you they know to implement the vision then it, that there is no clear design or strategy but we can talk the next time about that yeah let's what's, talk about um, that yeah what's interesting um, or interesting super useful i wait for this but we'll still preview pattern matching for switch so this is like the b- bigger matching right so um, yeah uh, um, what, what happens is the combination of this I don't know how to call it the matching which we already have like you know where you can uh, the instance of matching I think is called right and this would be the combination of instance of matching and switch in switches right
1: yeah so yeah so at the moment you can use like standardized I mean like standardized oh, it's called the, the
0: matching so what do we have
1: yeah so that's all those are just generally patterns right so we can we have at the moment we only have so okay let me start a little bit earlier the issue is that these are uh, larger topics which have like Different, uh, like they have like global terms that describe like a whole concept, and then they have specific implementations. And for many of those, we just have one at the moment, which makes it harder to distinguish. So, for example, um, if you talk about something that's features that are finalized, we only have type patterns at the moment. A type pattern checks whether an instance is of a specific type, and if it is, it declares a new variable of that type, which then Mm -hmm. points at the old instance, right? So, that's Mm -hmm. what we can, that's the only pattern we have at the moment now in uh so how this we, is
0: called this pattern this is this, called this is called a type maybe. pattern type pattern okay
1: yeah mm-hmm. um, that's and the, on, the only place where you can use it is in an if and in an if you write mm-hmm. if foo instance of point p for example mm-hmm. so we only have this one kind of pattern and we can only use it in one place and what now in jdk18 uh, what the second preview just talked about is pattern matching for switch, meaning, okay, now let's extend expand switch so that it can also use patterns so that you would write switch over the instance foo. So switch in parentheses foo, curly braces, and then you don't write case a string, maybe because foo is a string. No, now, now foo can be an object. You can write case point P, for example. Mm-hmm. But this is not just type patterns in switch. If we already had more patterns... They would also automatically start working in Switch. So, this is not, Switch will not have to be extended piece by piece for each pattern. So, the idea is Switch now learns how patterns in general work. That's one dimension, that's one axis. And the other axis is let's add new kinds of patterns in the future. And um, yeah, so this second preview, this Jet 420, was about uh, figuring out how that works. And it was—it's not—it's also not uh, the final version. So that changed again for a third preview in JDK 19. And once again, there was a newscast I did about that. That was episode 24. So it was like a month ago at this at the time of recording, at least, where we uh, where I looked at the changes from the proposal uh, in JDK 18 versus in JDK 19. And the interesting bit there is that you don't only want to say switch over foo case it's a point p do whatever. No, you also want to apply checks. You wanna say I only wanna treat points, let's say where x is where the x coordinate is zero. So what you could of course do is you could say switch over foo and in case it's a point, so case point p arrow if x is zero. But that 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 muddies the water. Then you have on the left hand side you have a part of a check, namely is it a point? And on the right hand side you have another part of this check, is it a point with the x coordinate zero? And then also the action on the right-hand side. I think the preferable way to write this is to put all the checks on the left-hand side and then all the execution on the right-hand side. And to do that, you need some kind of boolean mechanism, right? So you want to say case point P, so case, in case foo is a point, and then some also want to check that X is larger zero. And the way you did this, or the way that you can do this in the preview in JDK18 is you write case point P ampersand ampersand, the ones that we use in an if check, right? So the ends. Um... A, a P dot X is larger zero. And that is the uh, uh, the most uh, important change from JDK 18 to 19 in this in this preview for pattern matching. In 19, you would write when. So you would write case point P when X is larger zero. Um keyword? Okay. Yeah, well, it's a contextual keyword, so your variables can still be called when. But yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. This is
0: the first time for how long? What oh, no, sealed. Sealed. Ah, sealed exactly. Sealed. Okay, not And one. non-sealed.
1: Non-sealed was actually non-sealed was the first uh, hyphenated keyword. Mm-hmm. Also, still not keyword. So the interesting thing is, like, technically a keyword is something that you cannot use as a variable, right? It's like void and mm-hmm. public. Those mm-hmm. are those are keywords. Yeah. Name keywords. All the yeah. new stuff that Java introduces are like contextual like var is not a keyword var is a reserved type name that means okay. var only has any specific meaning where the compiler would expect a type name everywhere else you can you can use it so you can have a variable called var a method called var all of that is, works fine you can even have a type that's called var if it's uppercase v but oh, lowercase this, v uh, this that would be cool. does not work so, you
0: yeah, should write a blog post var var equals new var right
1: yeah yeah totally Definitely, yeah. that that makes for the best code.
0: And method var, and I, I will do it for sure. Right, this would be fun. And then var yeah. var, and then it returns uh, another uh, var. So d- yeah, so
1: you, so you could write like what public var var. Yeah, and then uh, then no no parameters because parameters you have to give types that would be boring. And then you write var var equals new var, and, and then you return var.
0: Yeah, and uh, of course we need <laughs> in, in this particular case a var builder. Which, uh, ah, uh, yes, yes, true. and um, but this would be fun, so okay. But how to call the when it is not keyword, how to call this thing? So, which is a reserved, reserved word, yeah.
1: So, var is a reserved type name that, okay. that highlights that it's only important where, where the type is expected. I think generally they are called contextual keywords or context specific keywords or context sensitive okay. keywords. So, it's about like they are a keyword in a specific situation, okay. Um, only then do they have special meaning.
0: So so what we learned right now is that uh, for the pattern matching, we need a, some kind of boolean expression. And the first one was the if, and the second one is going to be switch. And uh, in the 18, we have uh, ampersand, and in 19, we get when, right? This is what...
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: Interesting. Oh, interesting, useful. I really I'm i really looking forward for the switch because uh it will affect me a lot. I do a lot of, you know, type checking and JSON and processing and JSON is um if you oh, get the JSON yeah. value back you have to know whether this is no number or string. And this will, all will be going to be a lot nicer with uh the uh, new uh pattern switching in Pattern matching in switches and what I already enjoy is the switch expressions, I have to say. So I really enjoy it. Yeah. So I rewrote all the switches and um it is way nicer, way shorter and and, and, and looks good. So a small thing yeah, in Java definitely. eighteen, which I really enjoy is because I always ignore that, is the <laughs> default UTF eight. So I always you know was too lazy to do the d- default character set and no catch the whatever. So it seems like if you don't do it in Java eight so if I migrate my old code to Java eighteen, everything is getting to be better, right?
1: Ah, no no. That read oh. no, actually no, that depends on what your system is doing. So oh. here's the thing. As you say, um, all the other A- the APIs that like read characters from files or write mm-hmm. characters to files, they need to know the encoding, right? Yeah. And so all of these APIs have overloads where you can say this is this encoding, this is that encoding, yeah. but as you say, we're all lazy, so we yeah. don't always do it. And uh, the consequence of that is that then the uh, the JVM has to deduct what kind of uh of Um, encoding is supposed to be used. And it does not do that based on the file. It just like generally infers it from like operating system and JVM settings. Mm -hmm. So basically when the JVM launches, it figures out what's the default encoding. And if you don't give it a specific encoding, it will use that default encoding. Now on most Unix-based operating systems, that will be UTF-8. I mean, it doesn't have to technically, but like you have to really struggle not to make it Mm UTF-8. So uh, on most of these systems, that will already be UTF 8. So most of these systems, specifically most backend systems that are Linux-based, they will not feel any change here. Mm-hmm. Every project that diligently passes encodings around because they know that the users, you know, create files in different encodings, they can they also won't see a change. The only projects that will see a change are those that do rely on the default encoding, but which are not running on a system which uses UDF-8 by default, so most likely Windows systems. So if you're running on a Windows system and you don't pass encodings around, in the past, the the runtime would just pick uh, a Windows system encoding as probably. It would have picked that as a default. And if the files are in the same encoding, that worked. But if you now move to Mm -hmm. 18, that default behavior changes. But that means that now your app might use the wrong... um, um the wrong encoding and so the reason why this change was made is uh to screw over all the windows user because they deserve it no wait yeah. oh that was internal sorry no uh the real reason is uh, the real to, reason to, is that this makes to
0: force windows users to use the linux subsystem
1: right exactly yes yes yeah. and then oracle cloud go to OCA. yeah no seriously uh so the reason is that uh this makes uh, java it makes the jvm more predictable like it's weird that yeah. it would behave yeah. in that perspective yeah. different on different operating systems uh, because while it to a degree makes sense, it would like you, let's say you ship with a file, you ship your jar with a file, right? Some configuration file. Um, and that file has just one encoding, right? So you would write that file in, let's say in Unicode encoding, utf eight encoding and uh, it works and everything's fine. But then you run the same, the same app on a Windows machine and suddenly it figures out, oh, this is a Windows encoding and then it cannot read that file properly, which is weird. So it makes sense yeah. for the JVM To unify, and we're always using one encoding, and gladly it's uh, not a Windows encoding, but it's UTF-8. But yeah, that means that uh, some code bases might have to update, but there is a command line option. Uh, Let me look it up, uh, where you can file encoding, right? So there's a system property called file.encoding. And you cannot just pick in random encoding. So what you cannot do is you cannot say, like, file.encoding equals whatever you want. That never worked, actually. But you can now set that to compat, so, like, compatibility in all caps, C-O-M-P-A-T. Mm-hmm. And then you will get the old behavior back. So if your app starts behaving weirdly on JDK18 uh, with regards to characters, then you're probably on a system that uh, doesn't use utf-8 by default and you probably don't pass enough um, encodings around and the quick fix is to set the file encoding to compact and then you can keep working but the long-term fix is uh, to figure out either to turn everything to unicode or to start uh, using the proper apis and mm-hmm. uh, pass the encoding that you need
0: yeah exactly this is minus d file dot encoding. this is the system parameter and you can yep. do in the Java 18 with Compat is like, it will behave like prior to Java 18. But what it could do, you could already in Java 17, let's say, uh, uh, point it to UTF-8, right? And then it yeah. will use internal UTF-8. So you could emulate somehow the Java 18 behavior, right?
1: Yeah, so exactly. So the um, you can also do that in forward compatible manner. That's absolutely yeah, true. Exactly. And by the way, unlike to what one would think, file encoding does not interpret any other value than UTF-8 and Compat. Those are like the only things it knows about. Mm-hmm. Um, which is weird, right? Because it feels like a property where you can just specify the default encoding, but you can't. Like, yeah. What you can do in the past is you can force UTF-8, which is um great way to now test your app. Let's say you're on 8 or 11 or maybe even 17, and you want to make sure that it works on 18, then you can already force UTF-8 and then see whether it behaves or not, right? That's a great thing to do with, like, with a test suite uh, and just see whether everything works as expected.
0: By the way... Um... I had already a trouble several times because I had a file and I had no idea in which encoding it is, and this is not that easy to find it out. So, um, yeah, uh, and this is really interesting problem. So, um, I, 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 my expectation was first, you know, maybe the editor knows, but no, I, I, you could try and see whether it looks right, and then I did some research. It's not that easy actually to find it out. Um, interesting problem, actually. Um, yeah. So I, I was. Uh, it took me a long problem. time to. F- mm-hmm.
1: It took me a long time to figure that out as well. Like the, the, the a UTF occasionally used bomb the byte order mark, and that that actually like tells the mm-hmm. uh, can tell the reader or the edit or the uh, the editor that you use what encoding is used. But yes, usually it's, that's not the case. It's just it's just bytes, and you basically have to try different formats to figure out does this look right. And uh, so there, of course, is overlap. Right, as long as you only use ASCII, you cannot differentiate uh, some some encodings. They look the same as long as you just use the ASCII part. Uh, of their of their encodings, you will usually start to see differences when you use you know like umlauts or you know special characters. Uh, that's when you will mm-hmm. start seeing uh, the differences. And yeah, so that's it's not trivial. That is true.
0: Suggestion: So we will talk about Java nineteen after your vacations,
1: and loom. Yes, and loom. Oh yeah, there will. Be, oh so yeah, loom definitely.
0: We have to because uh, I'm really I really uh, cannot wait for loom. So this is my I, yeah. I, I can. You know, because right now I still see project try to experiment with reactive programming APIs without a reason. And I hope Loom <laughs> will fix part of that, you know, so that we get back to Java code like 1995, you know, with uh, simple methods, simpler methods. And um, and um, yeah, maybe as a cliffhanger, um, in most of my project, I just write, you know, uh, simple Java code. And this is fast enough without any tricks. And uh, of course, it is not. I'm not writing, you know, uh, load balancers most of the day, but
1: um, with Project Loom,
0: my expectation is we can be more scalable without lots of tricks, which is always good.
1: Yeah. So if if the number of threads is the limiting factor for your app and for many web backends, that is actually the case, um, then Loom will probably change that a lot. It might only change it by a little, because you might find out just, just 10% more threads, and now your database is the bottleneck. So this would actually be like very interesting because many projects will find like bottlenecks are usually serious, and you cannot identify the next one until you fixed one. So some, some yeah. might start using, hey, I use virtual threads now, I get like three times the throughput, and others will be like, well, after 5%, I figured that now, I don't know, CPU, now I'm CPU bottleneck. Now a CPU and is done. And this
0: is the reason why Oracle creates Loom, because then they will find out they will have to migrate to Oracle. They <laughs> yeah, too more exact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, thank you. Where people can find you?
1: Yeah, so I'm NipaFX, N I P A F X, and yes, that is the FX from Java F-X because I'm that creative. Um, you can find uh, Can find me uh, on on Twitter, on GitHub, on Twitch, on YouTube. My website is NipaFX.dev, but also importantly, I work for the Oracle Developer Relations team, and we do a bunch of stuff as well. So and TikTok as
0: well. Are you not? Are you not a TikTok?
1: No. I'm not on TikTok. I'm too old. I tried to, but they kicked me out. They were like, what? You're above 25? Get out, you old man.
0: Oh, uh, okay. So I think you're now in a Barbie suit to do something on TikTok or whatever. right? No.
1: <laughs> Maybe I am. I'm just not telling you. <laughs> whatever you do, don't look at VPFX on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. um, right, so but as I say, like, okay. I work for the developer relations team and we also do a bunch of stuff. So there's the official Java YouTube channel. So you can go to youtube.com slash Java where I do a newscast every other week. Um, and then there's also dev.java and inside.java. So if you're interested in these kinds of conversations, if you're listening to Adam's podcast, you're most likely uh, very on the on the cutting edge. Then I can recommend looking at inside.java, uh, and you will see a website that is basically an aggregator of all the small things that change. Not all the small things, the important parts of the small things that change, right? So you will find new jabs were posted, interesting articles about maybe web server or about Loom. And also, like interesting mails on the mailing list will also get highlighted there. So this is all about being closer to how uh, the JDK evolves. And uh, it's a great resource. It has an RSS feed. If you're old school, uh, you can just get all your things uh, to your to your home delivered, and then check old it out. Old school
0: is uh, good because if you have RSS feed. You have more vacations because you know you can have everything in one place without lots of clicking. So um, yeah, enjoy your vacations. Thank you. Lots I'll of see you coding. again. No TikToks, no social media, and then, you know, you are (laughs) fresh back.
1: Yeah. See you then. Bye. Bye.